Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. There's, there's smart people and, you know, like the proverbial, you know, different blind people looking at the elephant, everybody looks at it and, you know, somebody sees the tail, somebody sees the trunk and they report upon what they're seeing, but they don't report on the whole big thing that this is an elephant. And this is a great example where, the, you know, the team who is very smart, I have a lot of respect for them. They wrote it based on a very simple metric, which was they looked at implied volatility of the VIX or the VIX versus the implied realized volatility of the S&P 500. And and that's one metric. And that metric is not a very good metric for tail risk because the VIX is not a a metric of volatility. The VIX is a metric of the full uh, distribution of option, including the tails. And And you can't compare more than volatility, right? Exactly. So you can't compare that. And secondly, you know, if, if implied to realize ratio or differential was the only thing that mattered for identifying richness and cheapness, then you could basically, you know, sell options and everything because implied volatility always trades higher than realize. Yeah. Listeners, get ready to buckle down to learn about tails, trend following, and trying to protect against the second leg down, because today's guest has become one of the top voices on these topics. We're welcoming Veneer Bensali to our pod today. Veneer is a 29-year industry veteran, formerly of a little shop called PIMCO, Forbes columnist, author of four books on finance, and is currently the founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha. So we're excited to be sharing all his knowledge with our listeners. Thanks again for joining us, Veneer. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Um, we were just talking offline that you have this nice, uh, warm sunshine glow on you from Newport Beach, while the rest of the country's in a deep freeze. Do you feel guilty, or you're fine with it? Uh, I've just gotten used to it. I get after the market close, I get to look out and enjoy the sunshine. A little bit guilty, I guess. Yeah. No, don't. We all we all want to be you. Um, mm. Except in the Chicago here, we we say okay, we have all the snow and the cold, but we don't have natural disasters, so we kind of. <laughs> We have pension disasters, but not natural disasters. Yeah. Uh, so we try and justify it that way. Um, and so Newport Beach, that's about halfway between LA and San Diego. Um, how long have you been there? Is that the firm has always been there? PIMCO is obviously there. Yeah, so PIMCO is only, uh, I don't know, one or two blocks away. And I moved here in 2000 from New York. So yeah, I've been close to 20 years now, a little over 20 years. There you go. And where were you in New York and before New York? So, yeah, so before New York, obviously Longtail Alpha, my current firm, has been around for almost six years now. I was at PIMCO for about uh, 16 years. Uh, Before that, I was on Wall Street in New York at uh, Credit Suisse First Boston, proprietary trading for one year. Uh, Solomon Brothers Arbitrage Group, the group that followed the liar spoker 
uh, book episodes. So I was in that group, uh, bond trading, fixed income bond trading. With Meriwether? Uh, uh, John Meriwether? Oh, well, yeah. So Meriwether was actually in the main part of Solomon. He was one of the, um, I never saw him. I never knew him um, because, uh, uh, you know, he was very senior. He had left by the time I got to the prop desk. Um, and he had already, they had already left and uh, started LTCM by that time. Yeah. Um, so I got in the group that kind of took over from Meriwether and his team in the prop team. <clears throat> and then right before that, I was at Citibank. I um, uh, was there for a few years, four or five years, trading exotic options. And uh, before that, I knew nothing about finance. Uh, and I had finished my PhD in theoretical physics at Harvard. Really? Okay. Yeah. What, what was the trick to get you from theoretical physics to finance? So was, there was no trick. I remember when I was finishing my PhD, uh, I got a couple of calls. This was uh, now, gosh, I'm going to date myself, that uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, and um, every Wall Street firm was looking for um, physicists and mathematicians to come and work on their research team or their trading team to trade exotics and hybrid options and things that required a lot of uh, math and simulations. And yeah. I just got a call out of the blue and um, uh, from Goldman Sachs and I went and I interviewed uh, and I was sitting across uh, from this elderly gentleman who was taking a lot of notes and he told me that he was also a physicist and I could read his handwriting upside down. Uh, basically said that, uh, you know, is very good at math, but does knows absolutely no finance, <laughs> et cetera. And I came back um, and I told my roommate, who was an economist, uh, that I had this interview with Goldman Sachs. Um, and there was this gentleman by the name of Fisher Black. Does he know oh, Fisher? Really? Wow. And, uh, of course, uh, I got a job offer in the Fisher Black research team. I did not take it. I went and um, ended up working at Citibank instead because, uh, from my perspective, I was only going to be there for six months to a year before I became a postdoc uh, in physics. Yeah. Here I am 30 something odd years later, I'm still doing it. You ever wish you'd like stuck with physics and we're doing like string theory and stuff? So I did do that. And that was kind of my, my research was somewhat related to string theory and uh, very abstract. Um, That's about as far deep as I go on it of knowing the name of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, no, not really. I, I think, you know, I keep in touch with my colleagues, a number of whom are professors at various universities and my old uh, faculty advisor who, um, you know, believe it or not, he, when I was at PIMCO, he came and worked with us in, in finance and the two of us ended up writing a book on uh, fixed income. Uh, so a physicist writing a book on finance and a finance person from physics. Yeah, it's all a big hodgepodge. Uh, I get enough of physics going to Caltech and, you know, sitting in the presentations and seminars and being on the department chairs committee and all that. I don't need to do that as a job anymore because uh, that's primarily, you know, publishing papers to essentially hold on to your job. And I'm, I'm yeah. here. Unless you want to become like Neil deGrasse Tyson and make a, make a personality out of it. Right. Exactly. And yep, that's right. Yep. You, yeah. you like him. I kind of like him. I do like him, yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, my my own personality is more suited to rapid experimentation and feedback from the markets, and uh, and so I think uh, accidentally, certainly accidentally for me, I found uh, something that I enjoyed doing and have been enjoying for not you know thirty odd thirty odd years, I guess.
Yeah, physics, you might have to wait several millennia before some of your hypotheses would pan out. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about PIMCO. So were you, did you run across Bill Gross or what was the, what was the scene like back then? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bill was actually one of the main reasons when Solomon Brothers was getting shut down or actually maybe before it got shut down. Uh, but we had inklings. Uh, this was back in uh, 1999, 2000. Um, I was at Credit Suisse and uh, I'd already started speaking with PIMCO. And the main reason I started speaking with PIMCO was because of Bill. Uh, other than Solomon Brothers Bond Group, I thought um, PIMCO and Bill were basically the place to be for fixed income. So uh, I did get interviewed by Bill. I did manage to get hired and I did co-manage uh, some portfolios with Bill and Bill and I worked together for 15 years. And from my perspective, uh, he is one of the greatest investors. And, um, you know, despite what you might've heard or read, uh, I always had extremely good interactions with him. And like all my other PIMCO friends, um, he is still a good friend and uh, I have nothing but admiration and respect for him. And he's quite an, quite an amazing investor. Yeah. I feel bad from the last thing we've heard of him was that video of him in his, in his backyard or whatever with the neighbor. I don't know what was going on there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll leave that. We'll leave that be. Uh, cool. So then you're at PIMCO and decide, okay, I want to break out on my own. I want to do my own thing. How did that come about? So I'd been doing it for many years. You know, I was lucky enough uh, back in 07, 08, I was running already for a few years a tail risk related portfolio and in 07, 08 crisis, that portfolio did extremely well for clients. We had a number of large um, public pensions and other investors and, and that kind of put tail risk hedging for us at least on the map and that business grew very rapidly. And I got the opportunity to start a number of other quantitative strategies at PIMCO, including you know, trend following that we'll talk about and uh, some other systematic strategies. So I grew that business. Uh, it was a small but quite successful business. And then somewhere, I guess, towards the end of you know, 2014, 2015, after Bill had left, it sort of became obvious that um, it would be very hard for me to kind of keep doing what I wanted to do in that direction. And at the same time, um, it seemed to me that in, you know, volatility had gotten to a very low level and the markets were being set up effectively for some large tail type of moves, which seemed like a, the right time for me to actually spin out and start my own business. So 100 or maybe 200 yards away from PIMCO, uh, long tail alpha exists uh, and um, we're a small firm and we've been able to kind of, you know, translate some of these ideas into, into practical things. Awesome. So that was six years ago. Um, so you were a little early on the tail thing, right? Yeah. So in those first years where you're like, Oh no, what have I done? This is, we might be low volatility for the rest of my life. Yeah, certainly 2017 and 2018 felt like that, but you know, it's, I've been in the business long enough and, I know the cycles and I've read enough history to know that uh, low volatility breeds its uh, own insecurity. And I've written a number of papers on this topic on how, um, you know, when you're faced with humans, faced with a certain type of economic condition, it goes in large cycles. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to say we 
um, were early, but at the same time, the timing was very good because it gave us a couple of years to build the framework, build the team out, build the infrastructure, the software, the relationships and all that. So from you know being able to be in the markets at the right time, uh, fortunately it worked out very well for us that timing, the little bit of delay. And then I was listening to you on Meb Faber's podcast and you're a snowboarder. Yeah, so I am not, you know, I didn't start until much later because I grew up in the desert. I started <laughs> early late in life, but but I love the sport and I've been doing it and I've been doing a lot of backcountry stuff. Actually, I just came back from a uh, snow camping, overnight snow camping trip where you camp on snow and make shelter in the snow and all that, primarily for survival reasons. And before that, an avalanche course. And so I've been doing a lot of backcountry, you know, what they call skinning. Yeah. Um, and I found a group of uh, other people who uh, also enjoy it. So, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm going to start I- like volatility trader slash skier conference or something. We need a, uh, yeah. Yeah. a trend following one where a couple of guys would go out every year. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where, where's your favorite place? You go out to Mammoth lot there in California or you go. Where- yeah. You nailed it. Uh, it's very close to us. As a matter of fact, I'm heading out tomorrow afternoon and uh, nice. I know the place very well. I know the mountains. I have a number of friends who live there. I have a number of uh, uh, guides slash professionals who live there. So I know the mountain very well. I like the space and it's uh, very close. So yes, that is indeed my favorite place. We so just far. tried, uh, came back from Taos, New Mexico. I'd never been there before. It was, it's like a skier's mountain, not a lot of frills, not a lot of um, fancy stuff, but it was fun. Um, and so how do you square like your whole business, your whole career is built on like, identifying outlier risk. And to me, you're like out there in the back country where there's huge outlier risk, right? It's like your personal life doesn't match up with the professional life or you, you think you can control the, the avalanche risk and whatnot. Yeah. So that's, that's an excellent, excellent question. So, you know, I, I have a couple of other hobbies slash activities also. Um, you know, so I'm a pilot. I, I'm uh, rated uh, as an ATP airline transport pilot, which is uh, in the U S the highest rating. And I also run um, uh, ultra ultra marathons, hundred mile races, and so on. And um, you know, each one of those things, you can ask the same question: is uh, yeah. you know, um, are you taking risks that uh, you might not be able to manage, and how does that kind of square with how we manage financial portfolios? And uh, I wrote a paper on this also in this topic about four or five years ago. I think it's a matter of um, quantification. I mean, these, none of these things are exactly quantifiable, but you can certainly get a better idea of what the hazards are present in any of these activities. And by following a process, by following, you know, a disciplined approach, you can actually not eliminate certainly, but you can mitigate a lot of those risks. And, you know, coming back to avalanche terrain, uh, there's experts there, you know, Bruce Tremper out of Colorado is one of them, but there are people who spend their whole lives and careers thinking about avalanche risk and, you know, looking at the slopes and the aspect and the, and the wind and the conditions and the weather and new snowfall. Again, it's not hundred percent, just like in financial markets, nothing is hundred percent predictable, but you can, you know, handicap and you can start placing odds. Uh, same thing with running, long distances, same thing with aviation. As long as you follow general safety guidelines, uh, there's no guarantee that you're going to be safe, but you have a better likelihood of avoiding uh, putting yourself into 
into a bad situation. So uh, certainly, I think a lot of those barrels very naturally, uh, you know, take over to what we do here. Yeah, and I, my guess is there's not many unknown unknowns, right? There's known unknowns of what if this avalanche triggers or that, but I know that that's an issue versus in the markets or whatnot, there's unknown unknowns you have to protect against and can't be outright short vol or something like that, right? Yeah, and, and it is true. I mean, again, market and in, in, in nature, I think the limit of what we actually know uh, I mean, it's very limited of, of what we actually and what we not know. So a high degree of humility, obviously, is always warranted. And, you know, the, the, the markets uh, additionally are you know more complicated because it's not just nature. Nature is somewhat predictable. As a physicist, I can say that, you know, there are certain equations and certain conditions that you can replicate in the lab that are likely to hold true in financial markets. Um, you know, that all goes out the window because financial markets are made out of individuals and individuals, I mean, there's some predictability, but at the same time, environmental conditions can be completely different, right? Right now, we're in an environment of, you know, 20 odd trillion bonds trading in negative yields, which has never happened before. That's not something that you can replicate in a lab. So I think financial markets are definitely even more complex. Right. Um, the, than, the avalanche isn't going to go up slope, yeah. right? In right. financial markets, it could go up the mountain. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Give us the 30,000 foot view of what Longtail Alpha does, the elevator pitch, if you will, um, and how you help uh, investors. Yeah, so what we do here is we provide a set of diversifying strategies. And we are market agnostic. It's not focused on just downside or upside, but we think of our strategies as those that can result in better portfolio construction. So whether you know, something like a better cash management strategy or better options-based strategy or a better trend-following strategy. And we think of all of these things in one unified fashion. So what we're trying to do is try to create optionality for investors without necessarily having to just buy options. Optionality comes in many different ways. Having cash is optionality. Trend-following has optionality. You might think of fixed income as having optionality. So you could think of the whole thing in one unified framework. And I've been working on this for the good part of two decades. And essentially what Longtail Alpha does is brings this portfolio of option-like strategies um, to large investors and small investors at the same time. And so it's from outside looking in Longtail Alpha and do you sometimes get put in like the long volatility bucket and you're saying, hey, we sort of are that, but we're more absolute return as well? So we have one strategy that's primarily op uh, absolute re return, but but other strategies are dedicated towards long vol, uh, whether on the left side or the right side. And yes, you're exactly right. Um, the name was chosen to remind ourselves, to remind me primarily that we are a long tail uh, provider. There's a lot of providers with short tails and shorting volatility and so on, and they're doing a great job, many of them. Some of them aren't. Uh, we're not that. So we do something specifically, I believe, that people need that might not exist, with this, which is providing exposure to uncertainty, especially on the tails. And the tails, to me, are very different than just being long wall. And that's why we call it long tail and not long wall. Yeah, yeah. And so and when I hear long tail, I think of like Google search and, you know, long tail keywords. 
Like, is there any parallel there between like, I'm trying to get the, right. There's too much competition in the, if I Google snowboards, right. If I'm a snowboard maker and I'm trying to compete for that keyword, it's too expensive. If I'm way out there at like racing snowboard, mammoth, California, whatever, there's a, it's a way out there on the, I don't know which tail that would be, but it's out there on a tail and you can better compete there. Is there any bit of that or it's more of like when the market creates the tails? No, I think it's both, yeah, but elements of both. So certainly, you know, the word long tail is not something that I invented. It, yeah, it's yeah. been around. I think it was used in a Wired magazine article in a different context, which is, you know, we're evolving into a world. And I think certainly you saw it with the whole Robin Hood GameStop episode recently where um, these so-called rare events that happen only very infrequently are becoming more central and they can happen just to count the number of those events is so large that these rare events which probabilistically are in that fat right or fat left tail that shouldn't happen are becoming more commonplace and um and i think you know in the wired article they talked about how the future of marketing and the future of sales which is maybe the second part of your question is to not just provide the stuff that's in the middle which everybody can do and it's commoditized but the things that actually are consequential and that matter that are in one of the two extremes, um, but there's real value added. When you want a specific edition of a specific book from a specific writer and only two volumes exist. Yeah, you're in high demand. You know, on a bookshelf seller, but you can go to Amazon and they'll find it for you. So I think that is really part of the concept that we are trying to provide this completion to investors portfolios that is very uh, traditionally been very hard to get and talk for a second you, you mentioned that these have become more frequent these action in the tails but my whole career in managed futures trend following the last 10 years not so much right there haven't been the outlier moves that trend following classic trend following has needed mainly because lack of moves in currencies and bonds um so how do you, how do you What's your thoughts on that? Either they are becoming more prevalent or they're, why aren't they being more prevalent in the trend following space? And then I'll tack yeah. onto that later of like, well, you answer that one, then we'll come back to my second one. Yeah. So, I mean, you know that Jeff and, you know, uh, you've done trend following and researched it. So um, trend following is primarily, it's, it's like basically a long option strategy. There was a classic paper by Fung and Shea back in the early 90s that looked at explaining the performance of trend followers and they correlated it to basically being long and option straddle. So, so trend following behaves, acts like a long ball position and it does it primarily through using futures contracts. So the rules of a option-based trend follower or op, you know, options framework-based trend follower can be boiled down to something like a delta hedging replication rule. Now, the problem is that for trend following futures or with linear instruments to really work, the markets have to be able to continue moving in a particular direction. The trends have to be allowed to continue. Mean reversion has to be allowed to break down. And in the last decade, at least, or maybe the last you know, 15 years, we have had a force, the force primarily being the central banks and the need for yield that has basically curtailed the extent to which markets are allowed to move. Governments have become very powerful in currencies. There's been a lot of intervention in rates. As we all know, there's been a lot of intervention. And so you've kind of bottled up this pent up demand for trends into a very tight uh, little you know, central part of the distribution. And 
the natural outcome of that is that you're going to get, uh, you know, just like a petulant child, if you tell them, you know, they can't do something, um, they'll do start doing something else that will be even more annoying. So I think what you're going to see is uh, more little bursts here and there because the markets are not allowing, are being allowed to move to what is their natural equilibrium point because they're overly controlled. And I think at some point, the ammunition that the, whether the central banks have or the governments have, it runs out. And at that point, these trends start up again. And, you know, you and I both know trend following isn't new. It has been around for three, four, 500 years. People have done historical analyses going back a thousand years. And there's always decades. That one, you got to send me that one, a thousand. Yeah, a couple of French researchers who've gone back and very painstakingly collected data from, you know, grain markets and so on back in like, you know, Shakespeare in England and so on. And what they've said is, uh, you know, effectively this exists. Momentum exists. Momentum has always existed because behavioral biases following past history exists in human psyches and behavior. <clears throat> the bottom line is, you know, for a strategy like this that has been around for a very long period of time, there have been decades, maybe multiple decades where it hasn't done well for whatever reason, but then it comes right back. And when it's doing well, there's a lot of crowding. People come in and the crowds, you know, maybe three, four years ago, it was everybody's favorite strategy. And that suddenly fell out of fashion. And now nobody wants to do it because performance has been good. So it's going to result in... Now it's uh, doing good last four months. Yeah, exactly. It reminds yeah. me of a trans trend that was like six years ago. Maybe they wrote a nice paper and they were saying taller heads and fatter tails. So I was imagining, right, they're squeezing the distribution pushing the head up, but where's that going to go? It has to go somewhere. So it's going to pop. Exactly. exactly. You're saying we're, we're squeezing that head. It's popping up. We just haven't seen the tails pop up yet. Yeah. Low. I mean, this is very Minsky, you know, Minsky, an economist, low volatility generates fatter tails. Low volatility, fatter tails are exactly like, and that's, I'm glad we're having this, this, this discussion because to me, uh, volatility, which is standard deviation, is extremely different than the tails. These are different beasts. What's happening in the tails, just like saying my automobile insurance and my uh, catastrophic earthquake insurance are the same thing. They're not, they're different things. Because one is about ensuring day-to-day -day fluctuations. Mm -hmm. The other one is ensuring ruin, right? Right. We off. Yeah. Th so those often get conflated, right? Of like, oh, I'm getting this tail product so I can protect against volatility, but not necessarily the case. I don't know. Right. Today we're down two and a half percent when we're recording this or something. Um, VIX was up slightly, but a lot of people will be like, oh, did your tail hedge pay off today? Like, well, not really. This wasn't really a, a tail event, but uh, and that comes back to me with managed futures were sold there for a time. I might be guilty of some of it of like, crisis period performance, tail hedge, right? That they're going to perform. And then the next crises, which were short-lived, but, you know, 2012, 2018, 2020 to an extent, they didn't deliver. So, yeah, to me, it's like, how do you, do you still believe in trend following will be a tail hedge? But it's a, it's a much bigger and longer term tail, I guess. Yeah, I think that's exactly the way to put it, right? So, so you can't just say, there's only one tool that some people will say trend following is the only tool for hedging. Some people will say options are the only tool. Some people will say cash is the only tool. The way we think about it, these are different tools for different uh, depths of movements in the market and for different extents or 
length of time. So trend following works beautifully if you have a deep sell-off, yeah. which lasts for a few months, like 08, 09. Cash works beautifully if you have defaults, Lehman, Bear Stern crisis, because then it's, you need cash. And optionality works extremely well, like we saw in 1987. We saw back in February of last year, and we saw in the melt up, because optionality delivers very well in short periods of time. So, so there's been a lot of academics and maybe a lot of self-serving uh, you know, industry participants who've said, well, trend following is better than you know, XYZ or duration is better than trend following, et cetera, et cetera. We take a very democratic approach and we just wrote a paper in the Journal of Portfolio Management coming out. It's called uh, Diversifying Diversification, nice. right? The whole point is don't try to be too cute and say, you know, do only one thing. Do everything. You're trying to protect your portfolio. Why wouldn't you use all the levers? And what we actually demonstrate in that paper is that even if you didn't follow an optimization rule, but just did all four or five of these things, having cash, having trend following, having some duration, having tail risk hedging, and just ran a back test from you know the mid 80s, early 90s to today, the silly equal weighted rule actually did almost as well than a perfectly cherry-picked hindsight, um, you know, perfect optimized portfolio. And that just tells you that markets change, things change, and trend following might not have done well in three out of the four crises, but that doesn't make you should throw it out. It's still yeah. a very good thing for the next crisis, potentially, if it's long, long enough. And yeah. so is that your guys kind of mantra, go anywhere tail hedging? So would you be at one point like 80% trend following or 80% options? Will you dynamically shift back and forth like that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we have individual strategies for individual folks who want to talk you know, just do options based or just do trend or just do duration or just do cash. But then we also have commingle strategies where we can combine them, where we can combine them either based on a investor's um, idea of what the allocation should be yeah. or then giving us the degree of freedom to say, this is how much you should do based on market signals. So that's what we do in one of our you know, main flagship strategies. Um, and so talk through that a little bit of like, what was it like in April, May, right? When the option prices are through the roof, um, trend following is getting whipsawed, like what's the answer there? Just cash? No, so you do all four. So this is a great question because you, you can never, just like you would never put your eggs in one basket when you're thinking about building a stock portfolio or a bond portfolio, you diversify across these four strategies. So the way we look at it is say, what is the implied option premium, whether it's duration. Duration is an implied option premium because when you buy a treasury, you're giving up something else. You're giving up the opportunity to buy credit or, or equities or whatever, right? So, so that's an implied option premium. And what's the most you can get? If the equity market goes down 40%, you know, treasuries could go down 150 basis points, how much would you make? Yeah. So that's a trade-off between price return versus implied premium. So you can think of every single asset in those same terms and say, well, how much does a you know, short dated equity index option give you? Or how much does trend following do you? Trend following the premium is your whipsaw risk and your payoff is a deep protracted sell-off. So once you build that framework and you say, well, what's my best strategy? My best strategy is, well, it where is do premium. I, well, the combination of these four such that I get the most, right? So just like an optimizer would never say, don't do anything or do zero, 
Same thing here. You'll always do something of each one of these four strategies, the five strategies. But how do you scale them up and down? Depends on the market and the pricing and all that. Exactly. And I was just, we were having this debate internally on some portfolio work of if the future's unknown, how do you weight that, right? So you, I mean, you can know what you're going to spend on the premium. I guess that's how you would answer that. But the future's unknown. You don't know whether each bucket's going to be outperformance pass, underperformance pass. So it seems like a do no harm approach would be just equal weight, right? Well, yeah. And then the other thing you can do, one very powerful thing that investors ignore, in my view, is not thinking at the level of their own portfolio. So if I have zero, let's say I have zero equities and I have all in cash, then I don't need a tail hedge because I am already all in cash. If I have 100% equities, then I need it. So, so the minute you recast the problem and think in terms of what am I worried about? What am I trying to protect against? The solution provides itself in a matter of time, right? So if you're a retiree, let's say, and you can't afford, or you're going to retire, you can't afford to lose a lot of your wealth, then you better have some tail risk hedging with some sort of explicit option because you don't have the time to wait for trend following to pay off. So depending on your environment and what your own portfolio posture is, a certain kind of mix makes sense. Yeah. And that's how what we advise people. That there's no one solution for everybody. Even though the future is unknown, there is a better strategy and a worse strategy because of your own uh, initial conditions and your own portfolio. Yeah. Um, and so coming back to that March, even so even then when everything seems expensive in terms of tail hedging, um, you're still saying right, we have to have at least a minimum on in case in case it continues down, in case there's a second, third leg down. Exactly. And the way we think about it is that very you know, qualitatively and quantitatively that you nobody knows the future. So, so what am I willing to pay today for having a protection on, which is very expensive now. So we've taken some protection off, we've redeployed it into the markets. Now we're sitting there and saying, okay, we've got a lot more risk on. Now, what am I comfortable at my portfolio level? What can I stress shock can I bear from here on and how much am I willing to spend? And I have a number of choices. I can de-risk and go into cash. I can increase my risk by some more options. I can diversify as long as I believe the diversification is dependable, which sometimes it isn't like today, it was not. So how do you actually square all that stuff? And yes, exactly right. So, so even though we did a lot of monetization in February and March and we wrote a paper on this topic, we still had a fair amount of money in the portfolio with explicit option hedges that lost money subsequently as the markets rebounded, but that's okay because the underlying portfolio that they were combined with made a lot of money. Right, it's allowed you to put more into the underlying portfolio. Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned the monetization paper. I think I asked the question I don't know if I was in person or anonymously on the EQD conference of like, essentially your paper, and I admit I didn't read the whole thing, but essentially your paper saying, hey, if you monetize more quickly, is that correct? Um, oh, way oversimplifying it, but essentially if I monetize more quickly, my thought was if everyone starts doing this, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and each vol spike will get shorter and shorter lived, which is sort of what we're seeing in like over the last five, six years, right? So what are your thoughts on that of like, are people 
which, which one's feeding which? Is it the monetization is getting quicker and that's what's causing the shorter lived things? Or is it because they're shorter lived that monetization is getting quicker? Yeah, so, so our recommendation, just to be very clear, is not that you should monetize quickly or slowly. Our, our recommendation in the paper is some monetization is better than no monetization. And, 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 and that's big, simply because once the value of an option rises a lot, its time decay becomes very, very painful to bear and pernicious and so on. So, so you can do better than to stay in that option. You can restrike and move and monetize or take it. And Okay. So, so that's the first part of the question is that some monetization is better than others. We have some rules, some discretion and so on. But the second part of your question is the more interesting one is how is it impacting the market? So, so it's absolutely true that with the central banks kind of coming in and protecting and giving you know a, a put, so to speak, to the markets, it has encouraged people to monetize more frequently and it has been rewarded because monetizing allows them to then play off this implicit put that the central banks have provided. Yeah. Now the question is, will history keep repeating or not? And I'm not so sure if it'll keep repeating. So it's anybody's guess whether more frequent and quicker monetization is going to be better going forward. Maybe the next time we get hit with a market sell-off, we'll wish, we'll look back and we'll say, we should have waited to monetize. So, so anyway, so, so, so the, yeah, so I think. But I think you, the basis was make sure you have a plan essentially, right? Like have some rules in place because there's no way you're going to top ticket. If you're going to wait for it to feel right to get back out, it's going right. to, it's going to erode right away from you. Exactly. Um, and so what, it, and so you're thinking the shorter and shorter duration of vol spikes is due to that ever increasing fed put ignoring people monetizing? Well, you know, include, they're, they're both, right? So in a, in a one paper that I wrote with, you know, Larry Harris on short fall strategies, everybody's doing it. I think people have been rewarded until very recently for selling volatility. And monetization is one way of shorting volatility. The Fed put is a way of selling volatility. Even trend following is in the portfolio construction is shorting volatility. High frequency bid offer, uh, you know, has some component of that. Buying credit has short volatility. So there's an ecosystem that exists where selling volatility gets rewarded and has been rewarded over and over and over again. And what we're seeing in the last decade or so is just a manifestation of the fact that faster monetization, i.e. selling options as soon as option spikes happen, is more rewarding. But that's vast history. Yeah. And we don't know if the future is still going to look like, I mean, if you have a massive inflationary episode and the Fed cannot protect the markets by buying treasuries, and let's say they have to wait for some sort of approval before they can buy stocks, which I think they're going to end up having to do at some point if you have a massive meltdown. I mean, they came very close to it because they started buying corporate bonds, which are just yeah. you know a cousin of buying stocks. So between here and there, meaning between the stock market sell-off and the central banks buying stocks directly, you might have a very massive spike that does not fade. But people have been conditioned. I mean, the wall, the street writes papers and there were a few just in the last few days saying how, you know, the VIX should be shorted and so on and so forth. I'm not sure I buy into all of that stuff because- yeah, I was gonna ask you about it. It was a JP Morgan paper, like the VIX is the asset bubble because it hasn't come back down. 
So yeah, no, look, I mean, there's there's smart people, and you know, like the proverbial, you know, different blind people looking at the elephant. Everybody looks at it, and you know, somebody sees the tail, somebody sees the trunk, and they report upon what they're seeing, but they don't report on the whole big thing that this is an elephant. And this is a great example where the you know the team who is very smart, I have a lot of respect for them. They wrote it based on a very simple metric, which was they looked at implied volatility of the VIX or the VIX versus the implied realized volatility of the S&P 500. And and that's one metric. And that metric is not a very good metric for tail risk because the VIX is not a a metric of volatility. The VIX is a metric of the full uh, distribution of options, including the tails. And And you can't compare more than volatility, right? Exactly. So you can't compare that. And secondly, you know, if if implied to realize ratio or differential was the only thing that mattered for identifying richness and cheapness, then you could basically, you know, sell options and everything because implied volatility always trades higher than realized. Yeah, which a lot of people think is a good strategy (laughs) until until it isn't. Um, But is that also saying like, hey, maybe this is needed, right? So for this big institutional vol selling to come back in and to make these tail hedges cheaper. I mean, I'm speaking for people in the long volatility space, you and I have like, sure, promote that, get people to come in and sell vol because we want to buy it more cheaply, right? So maybe it's net net a good thing for the world. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's a very important point, Jeff. I mean, there's, there's option buyers and option sellers, and I don't think either one of them can always be correct and is absolutely correct. So long vol and short vol, uh, is not absolutely correct. I think you have to have a balance in your portfolio. Some things, have, like when you buy equities, you're short ball. When you buy corporate credit, you're short ball. And you balance it with something that doesn't you know, take you out on a stretcher when the bad stuff happens. So you, every portfolio, very simplistically, again, after doing this for 30 something odd years, every portfolio is just a combination of short optionality and long optionality. Yeah. And you just got to balance it. Yeah. So. So let's get back to negative yielding debt. Um, so 17 trillion, what's it at now? Is that the number you mentioned? Yeah, it's probably 17. Uh, I have a book coming out with the CFA Institute, a monograph they asked me to write on negatively yielding markets. And I'm, I'm hoping it was the, the due date is next week. And I'm just hoping that it stays negative for a little while more so I can get the book published. Uh, you know, uh, But yeah, it was 25 trillion when I wrote the last uh, version of the book last week. And I think it's closer to about 19 trillion right now. It's a book or a paper? It's a, it's a monograph. It's a, it's a book. At, uh, it's a whole, mono, they call it monograph for the CFA Institute, CFA Research Institute, yeah. Got it. So let's talk, um, what, why is it bad? It sounds bad, but why is it bad? Tr- negative yielding debt. Yeah, again, so I should say, you know, I have my views. I don't know if I can say absolutely it's bad or it's good, but I can say, it has consequences, right? So just like going on a beautiful sunny slope right after you know, eight feet of powder, like we just got in Mammoth last, you know, two weeks ago, yeah. is you know it's not bad or good. It's just dangerous. I think uh, um, you know it's very good when you're on it and nothing happens. Yeah. But if it happens, you're dead, right? So so it's the same kind of thing, um, you know, with negative yields. Is that the whole financial system is levered to negative yields? A negative yield effects have gotten exported around the world, especially from Europe, where, I mean, they have resorted to 
cure for a bigger problem, then they create a bigger problem, then another cure. For instance, the banks were losing a lot of money so because of negative yields because they had to deposit at the ECB at negative rates. So they had to give the banks a freebie where they said, if you make some loans, you can borrow money at negative one and you deposit it at negative 50 basis points. So you can see how funny it gets, right? When like you yeah. are, you're borrowing it more negative and you're depositing it slightly less negative, so you have a positive. So, so there's a lot of bizarre things that are happening in the system where the, the full, the market has gotten levered up and very simply mathematically, the discount factor is a function of interest rates. And if you think about the discount factor as you know, the inverse of the rate, one over one plus R to whatever power, if R goes negative, both goes below zero, the, numer- the, the discount factor grows. Mm. So effectively, all asset values get bid up above their fair value. So it's like, instead of getting a guaranteed par in the future, I would prefer to get 1.05. Yeah, right. which we're not so, seeing any of that, are we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so you have taken a huge amount of future cash flows and accelerated it to today because of this negative yield effect. And that's part of the reason why growth has done well. NASDAQ has done way better than value because in this very perverse world, you prefer to have $1 30 years from now than $1 tomorrow. Yeah. How can- Well, I've read some stuff on that is that's a demographic issue that people literally have enough stuff. So they want the $1 30 years from now versus today. And I think- yeah, there's some element to, of that. There's some element of insurance. There's some element of, uh, you know, public pensions and insurers having to buy it because they're required for liability hedging. There's speculation. So in my monograph, or actually there's a paper that has already been published on this topic. Uh, I'm happy to send that to you. I list about eight or nine different reasons on why, even though the sellers, i.e. the issuers are issuing it, you know, negative debt, Italy, Greece, right? I mean, countries that are technically in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Are getting away with basically getting paid to borrow why does the buyer of the debt actually part with money for sure why would you absolutely say here take my money and i'll pay you interest uh that's because there's a lot of institutional reasons um why they've been forced to do it and it feels if i ask my nine-year-old daughter like hey i'm gonna i have all this money i'm gonna give it to someone to watch for five years and then they're gonna give it back to me and i asked her do you think I should pay them or they should pay me for that? She'd probably say, right? Like, no, if they're watching your money, you should pay them something to watch it. So it- that's, exactly, that, that, that's the justification. That's the insurance justification. Yeah. We're giving it to the German uh, Bundesbank or the ECB or whoever it is now, because we know that five years from now, we need that cash back, right? So that's a great, excellent, excellent point. And I will absolutely buy that as an alternative hypothesis. But let's say it was a double B rated corporate issuer. And so you are going to give it to a person who has every incentive to default and not give your money back. So yeah. tell that to your daughter. I'm going to give it to that person on the street. And I'm pretty sure he's not going to give me my dollar back. Or, or my I, 95 cents back. Yeah. I mean, he might give me zero back. Yeah. Should I still pay him? So that's, that's what is the counter example to your example is because there's a lot of corporate issuers with, you know, not junk, but really bad ratings, and they have no ability and incentive to pay you back. 
Right. And then you could even go into the individual Euro countries that could, right, or triple B. I don't know what their actual ratings are, but they're not the strongest in credits. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the what, corporate about the, what about the collateral argument, right? Of like, sure, but I all these new rules and I need collateral. And if I'm a prop firm and I got to put up $500 million, I don't care if I have to pay something on that because I'm making 10% on that capital or whatever. Exactly. So that's another one of the reasons that I listed in my in the in the monograph is the negatively yielding German Bund has a collateral recycling effect yeah. because you can put more money against it. But then your question is, why are again corporate bonds trading at negative? They don't have the collateral effect or Greece, and that's because many central banks, including the ECB, have bought up many multiples of the net corporate and government bond supply. They have to sucked it out of the market. And there, and there was a beautiful paper by actually ECB researchers who showed that the bonds that are eligible, uh, corporate bonds that are eligible versus non-eligible, they have a massive yield differential. Really? Yes. So, so the market- they fired or they still work there? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I like that. Like you're sticking it to the end. So what's, what do you, what's your view on how this all ends? So my view is that- Or how it could end. Yeah, I don't know if you know- It could end. I mean, it could continue forever because, you know, when the government's in play, they can keep printing money and keep it yield negative. Japan's done that for a long time. So it can continue. But I think uh, that's for the survival of capitalism, the way we have known it in the long run, uh, that this cannot persist, which means I think it starts with a cascade, not unlike the we've- one we've seen in the last week in the U.S. bond market, which then creates a sequence of second-order effects, um, you know, like mortgage convexity hedging and maybe equity selling off like they did today, and then corporate bond spreads widening out, mortgage spreads widening out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and it results in a sharp correction, perhaps of some sort, if it is not stopped. Uh, my my Central case is that a at some correction, you're saying, yeah, or any well, economic correction, all of the above, yeah, and well, asset correction for sure. And if the asset correction is not then stopped very aggressively by the government because they're the only game in town, meaning more negative yielding debt, that's where it gets into the crazy cycle, right? There you go. And and at some point, um, if it doesn't get stopped for whatever limits and reasons then it could be very ugly. Um, and so, but do your, and we could deflate our, what, what are the ways out of it without it being ugly? So the easy way, the soft landing way of this huge amount of debt that, you know, developed countries have incurred, which they have to now work off is one is to keep rates low and negative so they can just work it off because then you don't pay, you know, you probably read the statistics that, the total outstanding debt is the highest it's ever been, but the total debt servicing cost is the lowest it's ever been, proportionate. Yeah, because, I like yeah, but it's quite incredible. As a percentage of debt, we, is the we need that in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, to see if they can buy their own bonds back. Right. Uh, Someone's working on that. I hope. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, the, the 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 problem is, if you can't uh, keep interest rates low, then the next and you can't default. We have a sovereign, you know, this is the, the theory underlying MMT, obviously, 
is that if you have a sovereign who can keep printing money, we're going to keep printing money because we can pay debt with more printed money. Yeah. So everybody who we owe money to, we're just going to say, hey, yeah, we, uh, we know we owe you uh, $4 trillion. Uh, here's $4 trillion. We just printed that special dollars for you to pay yeah. to put your debt, debt back. So I think we'll just print a whole bunch of money and then everybody's going to get kind of, you know, wise to the game, which means they, it results in a surreptitious default, default, which to me basically means that, you know, devaluation of the currency. Yeah. And so the, because the U.S. dollar is still the reserve currency, um, again, no predictions here, but the natural trade, if this is hypothesis is true, is for the dollar to get weaker and weaker and weaker. While everybody's job owning and saying, we believe in a strong dollar, the dollar is allowed to weaken and weaken. And you come back 20 years from now, and the dollar is, you know, 50% of its current value. And seeing that, how do you, so that didn't seem like as one of your buckets of like this massive fiat risk or massive devaluation, right? So in theory, trends not going to catch that or options might not catch that, right? Do you cash, if you're in cash as one of your hedges, that wouldn't catch that? Well, the cash will catch it because then your cash will get devalued, but not as quickly as everything else, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trend will catch it. Yeah, trend will catch it because... Trend followers, as long as your rules allow you Good to get, catch it. yeah, yeah, as long as it's sustained, right? Yeah, now, but there's not like, hey, I need to hold fifty percent in gold or something like that. Okay, um, yeah. Now Bitcoin, right? I mean, you you think about again. I'm no fan of digital currencies, and I wrote a paper recently on my Forbes Forbes blog on why uh, I think the natural next step after negative yields and after you know bonds being bought back by all the central banks. The negative thing is, the next thing I believe is a digital central bank currency, a digital dollar, a digital whatever, right? Because then it's very easy to tax. No, no, you have to step back one second and say, why is this happening? Why is all this negative view thing actually exist in the first place? And it exists because in countries like Japan and, and in regions like Europe, there is no fiscal mechanism by which they can transfer wealth from, you know, some countries to other countries. So the monetary mechanism is the only mechanism to make a fiscal transfer. And Tom Sargent, who's a Nobel Prize winner, actually just presented at the, you know, at the January AEA meetings on this topic on how monetary fiscal convergence is happening. And anybody who thinks that the fiscal authority, meaning the taxing in the Senate and so on, and the monetary authority are different, is just kidding themselves. It's, yeah. it's one government. And there's just ways of transferring wealth from one to another. And in Europe, it's a very explicit manifestation. When you don't have a unified fiscal policy, you have to buy the bonds of the weaker countries at a higher price to transfer money. And how do you transfer money? Negative yields. Yeah. You give them money. So that's what's going on. Right? And to me, we've let the genie out of the bottle here in the U.S. of the, the stimulus payments. Like, I feel like we're going to get held hostage every six months now. Like, no, we need another stimulus round. And so it's like we've almost backed into basic income or something of like every year, at least there's going to be this debate of like, we need more stimulus. We need more stimulus. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I can't opine on the social aspects of it. Maybe, you know, for to narrow the inequality, something like that is needed. But my, my point just from the investor traders perspective is exactly what you just said is the market has now priced that in. Yeah, is that, gonna, they'll have their temper tantrums, right? If it doesn't get paid out. 
Yeah, and the bond vigilantes, as we used to call them in the old days, they're going to tighten policy like they just did today, right? They're going to, so the, you know, central bankers can say till they're blue in the face that we're going to keep buying 80 billion, 100 billion, 200 billion of bonds, but the market is way bigger than the resolve of any central banker. They, it will tighten long-term. Yeah. Talk know. to that a second. Is that a, is that a real thing? Like you always say like, oh, bonds are having a temper tantrum or a, what was it? Taper tantrum. Yeah. Right. So like our traders actually sitting there at PIMCO being like, we're not going to buy any bonds today to show them who's boss or something like, or is it more of a nebulous of like everyone starts doing the same thing at the same time? Well, I'm not at PIMCO anymore, so I can yeah. find a do, but, Somewhere like but, but generally traders and I am a trader and I am, I have been doing this for long, a long time and I know other people. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. That's how they actually, that is, that is what a tantrum looks like is, you know, the market is an aggregated thing, but it is made out of individuals. And when individuals look at what's going on, they react and they influence each other. And, and it, it, you know, like Robin Hood and so on, it, it, it just, it's like conflagration. It's like a fire that breaks out and everybody goes on strike, so to speak. Right. Because it's like, well, I could step in and I could be the hero, but if, all of them believe that this is a bad policy and inflation is going up. Hey, I'm not going to be the hero. Yeah. Right? It's so, like, a, I guess it's a unknown, right? Like it's the philosophical, how does it start? Is it one, one desk that's like, not today, this is getting too crazy. We're not, we're not buying anymore today. We're starting to sell. And then yeah. the next desk says like, okay, I, there's a little less volume here. I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden it becomes a aggregated, like the bonds are doing this, the traders are doing this. Um, yeah. So this, this is another great point. So, so look, we don't, you know, like the Reddit Robin, we don't do that, right? Nobody professional investors does that. So we use market information uh, to, to figure out what everybody else is thinking. We're kind of implying it from market action and market information. And at least in my own experience of 30 years of doing it, there are times when the market's can get distorted and controlled and the information contact can be eliminated like it has been done for the last few years because the central banks have been such a big participant. But most of the time, the market tells you, quote unquote, what it's thinking. And that's you know, a basic tenet of trend following, right? Yeah, right. You don't have to be that smart. You just have to follow what the market is telling you. Just be a follower right. of the market. And, and right there, most, in the name. there you go. And that's why it works is because the information is there in the price action. And so one last piece, on your last, speaking of MMT and stuff, do you you were saying in a, your last Forbes piece, maybe we should include asset prices and inflation? Um, yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's like, you know, that's a light, like a lightning rod. That's like property taxes in California, raising property taxes in California. It's like, or so transaction econ- taxes in financials. Yeah, exactly. So, so in, economists have brought this up numerous times, and this beautiful paper that I quoted in there from the '70s by Alchin and Klein shows, you know, theoretically why this is the natural thing to do. Because when investors or when individuals and households make decisions, they are not always myopic. They are looking at, you know, how much do I have in cash, my bank account, my house my stocks, that's how they think about their wealth. So that's how they react to pricing. Now, what has happened is somehow 
it's because it's inconvenient to bring asset prices into the inflation metric because then you have to index it to a volatile time series, et cetera, et cetera. It has kind of been swept under the rug. And practically speaking, it hasn't been measured. And the question is, well, we can measure PC inflation or CPI or PC, you know, PPI, the, the, the traditional metrics precisely, and they're smooth and we can index on it. So let's just go there. But wait for a second. You know, that's not what the Fed is doing today. The Fed is reacting to asset prices. We know that. So on the one hand, they're saying, let's target inflation that's slow moving, now average inflation. But they react to financial conditions and they write about it. And they say, we react to financial conditions because that can upset the markets and so on and so forth. So my, my point is very simple, is that if we're doing it already and investors are doing it and households yeah. are doing it, why don't we just bring it in and, you know, and it's, it's incredible if you look at the two cumulative time series. I mean, the CPI since 1990 has gone like this in a straight line, slightly up. The adjusted one where we do 50-50 weighting, 50% of traditional inflation metrics and 50% of asset prices, it's gone straight up. Hmm. And the rich, obviously, you know, and I guess I'm part of one of those categories, you know, they benefit disproportionately from having inflation protection in assets. Right, right. Uh, they liquidate and protect themselves against stuff that they need to buy, but others don't. So I, so that's part of the reason for writing this. It's not a social thing. It's just a, let's look at a better metric. Yeah, so, I want to throw in there um, property taxes and uh, private school tuition. And I've got some other ones I want to throw in that are like, those are the things that I'm in my stage of life right now, the things I'm paying are like on a nearly straight lineup. Absolutely. And everybody tells me that people say tuition, right? Healthcare and childcare basically are like the the highest risers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then you mentioned GameStop. I wanted to circle back to that. I'm like, do you guys have any talks internally or anything? I'm like, Hey, this is stupid, right? This was a crazy thing that happened, but maybe it's a thing now, maybe, do we need to add some metric of look at, right? And there were articles of hedge funds saying, hey, we got to monitor these chat boards and that kind of thing. Because at the no. end of the day, it's a huge asymmetric payoff, right? So it's like, do you, what are your thoughts on like, hey, how do we think about this in the future of identifying, and even you mentioned Bitcoin too, of like how do we identify these tail events that aren't really on our radar now? Yeah, that's an excellent question. We wrote a research paper, it's unfortunately not public, but I can kind of give you the gist of it on, on this exact topic on, how do you identify the next thing? So before we get into how do you identify and how do you position for it, which is ultimately what we do for our clients, the first question is, is it silly or is it not silly? Is it stupid yeah. or not stupid? My view is that it's actually completely rational. And I, I wrote a paper and why is it rational? I'll give you a very simple reason or analogy is, is that if you have a free or not free, but if you have a gift that you get a check in the mail, $1,500, and if you spend it, it's gone. But if you spend it on something that has a potential upside asymmetry that can change your life, um, it makes sense for you to actually do that. Right now, what the Robinhood and Reddit crowd have been doing, and there's some, some hallmarks of it, which is on our little you know, t- tiny toy model, is that if you buy the stock or the, or the call options, if you buy the stock of a, of a low capitalization company, with low market value, low dollar price, and so on. You can only lose what you paid for it. 
but you can make a lot of money. So the price of the stock is a call option on the underlying asset value. So if the company does well, you make a boatload of money. If the company does badly, you only lose a little bit because the stock price is exploded. You know? Okay. Now you want to lever. If you get some money, you have fifteen hundred dollars in the check or fourteen hundred dollars. You want to lever this up, and the Fed and everybody are saying, "Let's lever this thing up." We're yeah. telling you lever it up. You want to maximize leverage. Well, what is the most optimal instrument in the world for levering leverage? It's called a call option. Yeah. So when you put a call option on a stock price with a low price for a small company that has huge upside potential, it's an option on an option. A call option on a call option is the most levered thing you can do. So when the central bank says money rates are going to stay low forever or for a long time, and we're going to keep buying bonds, we're going to keep putting the system with money, this crowd is basically doing exactly what they are supposed to do in order to change their future. And I read a, you know, I read a quote from one of the Redditors um, on the Wall Street Bets, which you know, is very uh, you know, appealing. This is probably a 19-year-old kid somewhere. He said, you know, I've been on unemployment and I, if I lose my you know, stimmy check, stimmy, they call it, stimmy. Yeah. And then I'm back on unemployment anyways. But if it goes to the moon, my whole life has changed. So yeah. think about that. A personal call option laid on top of a market-driven call option that is maximally leveraged. I like it. Okay. But do you think they're literally thinking that or it's just innate and they're like, okay, I've got this free money and I've got nothing to lose and boom. I think they're doing it. And I think they're reacting as a, as a collective. The market has found the common denominator and that's what you have seen. And I think these episodes will happen over and over again, happening in Bitcoin uh, people have discovered options. I wrote a paper about three years ago called Right Tail Hedging on why call options um, will become attractive. It was in the Journal of Portfolio Management. And one of the hypotheses there was that if uh, there's de-equitization, if there's buybacks, and if there's a lot of fiscal stimulus, and there's possibility of up jumps, like we've seen, yeah. most optimal strategy is a call option. And I don't think anybody in this group has read my paper, but, <laughs> but, but they are doing. Well, and it's record call volume numbers now, right? Like all time. Yeah. yeah. Empirically, they covered the, rea the reality and the truth of that hypothesis, basically. Yeah. But don't you think the market makers will like widen their spreads and eventually you're buying these call, right? If everyone's doing it, the premium is going to jump out and you're going to, right? It's going to need a bigger move than you can even imagine just to break even. So I feel like there's Absolutely. an end game there where it's like, okay, this is great. But once, once everyone knows that this is great, the, right, the price is going to be reflective of that reality. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just today, GameStop options, you probably saw, you know, right after the latest surge where we got quadrupled in one day, you know, options expiring for tomorrow, we're trading at 1300% implied volatility. Yeah. Now, now what does that mean? It means nothing. Because Black Scholes options pricing model means nothing for one day, but but premiums were ridiculous. But somebody's willing to pay that premium, right? But you or, need to do the just. I did that on a, my Twitter handle. I went of just like, hey, it, I just pulled up a random option. I'm like, this thing needs to move. I think it was at 200 and needed to go to 800 by next no. Wednesday in order for the option to even break even. Exactly. Exactly. Crazy. Yeah. 
Um, and then the second part of that is like, so how do you guys view that as a firm of like, do we need to be in this sandbox or just be aware of this is happening? No, we are in the sandbox. I mean, I can tell you the exact strategies. We are in the sandbox and, you know, we obviously always play it according to, you know, the highest professional standards you can. And, yeah. you know, there's an opportunity. It actually makes sense for us. And we have, in full disclosure, we have been in the options markets and some of these stocks and we've been in this underlying stock market and, these, and um, you know, we've done well in them. We have a little framework within which we trade them. Um, I don't think, I don't think it's silly uh, yeah. that people, um, I think there's money to be made for everybody if you're careful. Would you take that anywhere? Like if it's like Australian real estate or something, or it has to be like exchange traded. Um, so like, does the optionality vision extend, go anywhere in the, in the world? It does. It does. Yeah, our framework, part of the reason I actually started this firm and part of the reason we're doing it is because we try to be small and flexible. And we do believe, I do believe that the world is undergoing a massive change that we want to be unrecognizable, which means that wherever the opportunity of optionality, and, and assuming we have access and we can trade it and transact it, exists, we will obviously pay attention to it. And the, the team here, my colleagues here are all exceptionally talented and they've been professionals and they understand that. And you know, we move very quickly and we um, can do things very quickly. So yeah, so the short answer is yes. Yeah. I love it. All right, well, next time when I see you buying up Australian real estate, we'll know it's the uh, it's time. Um, <laughs> cool, let's move on to uh, some of your favorites. Or you got anything else on the firm or on negative interest rates or any of that good stuff? Or your- no, I think that's, I think, um, you know, I, I just mentioned it. I think there's a couple of very large distortions that are out there right now, which will correct sooner or later. And uh, in that kind of world, when distortions are, correct, are correcting, anything can happen. Um, so I'd say, you know, my favorite thing, I guess I'd say, is just be extremely open-minded to everybody because anything can happen. I mean, oil prices have gone negative. I wrote about, uh, you know, when Tesla stock was in today's dollar price was at, I think, 50. Uh, I said, I wrote a piece called Beauty Happens, which I said, people who buy Tesla don't buy it because of... Um, you know, the old fashioned metrics, they buy it because of other reasons. Yeah. The stock is at seven. It's not, not the car, but, but the car probably also. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's a lot of stuff that is breaking and, you know, for negative 40 ish oil price, I mean, it's all over the place. So my favorites are that there's going to be opportunities that I tell, you know, again, people who listen to me is um, the world is changing and, things will happen. And this is the environment for fat tails to occur. And, and I think on the disruption or whatever you just said, there's ETFs. I heard you mention once of like, that was March. We saw some NAV versus price dislocation. So it, what do you say about that? So I think it's going to happen again. So what you're referring to is back in February and March, if you had liquidity, you could buy very, very bulletproof, good ETFs or 15 10, 12% discount to NAV where the yield was 2%. So you could make five years worth of yield in one day. And you could do that because of the illiquidity. And I think that's just, again, the nature of the beast. The ETF market has some very sophisticated participants and some extremely unsophisticated participants. And you know the next shoe to drop could be some fixed income ETFs where somebody who needs to generate liquidity just sells it and sells something that is, again, 
has pristine underlying components or constituents for a distressed price. Uh, so there will be opportunity there again when the NAV discount blows out again. But and could it go the other way where it's it's vice versa that you're getting hammered on the on a premium? Yeah, yeah. You have you have ETFs out there that are very popular. I mean, one of them is, is uh, legendary, right? The the Bitcoin ETF, the Grayscale. Yeah. Uh, I mean that. Yeah. So there are ETFs like that where you pay for access, you pay premium. go through some of your favorites rapid fire here. So favorite type of plane to fly? <laughs> I, anything. I fly everything. But helicopters is what I, I love. That's real flying. Everything is a computer these days. Really? So how does a helicopter where I've been in some of those and you got it, there's like 17 different things, right? There's the foot and the, um, I didn't yeah. realize it moves forward or backward by the rotor tilt, right? Uh, which makes sense, but um, but so you could jump in like a Boeing 777 or something and fly that? Well, I'm not type rated in it, but uh, I'm type rated in a lot of jets, but I'm not type rated in that particular jet. But if I went for a three week course, I could get type rated. So I could be legal in it. But right now, if I went with a professional and they, uh, you know, showed me the basics, I could probably do it. I mean, of course, I could land it because it's the same thing with the gear down and land. We I would do on one of the movies, right? Where like, is there a pilot on board? Yeah, yeah. I can do it. Um, how about how many of these ultra marathons have you done? So I think uh, I've done about fifty-five or sixty, uh, and counting. I've done eleven hundred milers, and uh, uh, I think probably seven or eight hundred kilometers, and maybe fifteen or twenty fifty milers. Yeah, that's crazy. So what's what's one of the favorite locales on one of those? Well, so that changes depending on, you know, when you ask me, if you ask me right after the race, none of them are favorite, but, uh, but the one I've done the most is called the Western States Endurance Run. I've done that six times. It's from Lake Tahoe down to Sacramento, essentially to Auburn. And uh, that's, I've done it six times, finished at five, dropped out once, got in a sub 24 uh, silver buckle once. That's one of my favorites. Uh, around the Mont Blanc, uh, you cross three countries, uh, France, Italy, and Switzerland. You basically climb 3,000 feet uh, mountains 10 times. Wow. 30,000 feet of climbing. That's my other favorite. Yeah. So are you a Tour de France fan? I feel like this, you've got an endurance athlete streak. Like, so how long does it take to run 100 miles? It depends on the terrain and depends on how well you've trained. But uh, my, my personal range is the lowest is a little over 23 hours uh, and the highest is 42 hours. And you're literally uh, running for 23 hours straight? Oh, uh, yeah. Running, there are times like in the Mont Blanc one, saying running is kind of a stretch because 30% yeah. rain is unrunnable. So you're basically just trying to make it across rocks. But you are running, I'd say, at least a third. Yeah. Wow. And, but, right. You're not, there's no like the Iditarod sled race. They like stop at night and rest the dogs. And No. Well, I mean, you can. And I mean. Uh, but you'll lose. Yeah. <laughs> it, it counts against your time. So in France, uh, when we were doing this, the Europeans have a very different way of uh, racing. They literally, when they get tired, they just lay down in the middle of the trail and, and go, to, go to sleep. And for somebody who runs races in America, that's really off-putting because I stumbled across a couple of sleeping runners on the on the trail. Yeah, no, but I didn't. Yeah, almost 40-something hours. Yeah. Get off the trail. Um, <laughs> how about favorite book that you've written? Oh, my gosh. There are... 
Oh, I, 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 there's so, so many. Though um, I don't even, I can that read so much, but uh, I use a lot of ma uh, instruction manuals. I don't know, believe it or not, on, on how to do things. Uh, so I got a lot of favorite instruction manuals. Um, <laughs> so the one that I just read, I guess. Well, some of them are pilot ones, and uh, uh, one that I just finished reading was a uh, beautiful uh, manual on how to rhyme, on rhyming, on on how a rhyming dictionary. How do you actually rhyme words? So, uh, anyways. <laughs> but I and Fave, what about your books? How you have four books? Yeah. Wh which one of yours is your favorite? Um, I think. Uh, I your favorite kid. Uh, you know. It's, I know um, probably the exotic and hybrid options one, which I wrote when I was about 32 years old. And I wrote that three years uh, ago, almost 22 years ago. Yeah. And I wrote that uh, and that book, I think it's still my favorite because it, I didn't know any better. So I put every method that I knew, every mathematical strategy and method calculation method that I knew in the appendix. Wow. So I still go back and I look at it, which tells me that, you know, I haven't grown very much. So <laughs> I still look on work to figure out how to solve some mathematical problems. I guess that's the one. That's yeah. good. These days, people would put it in a Twitter thread and then go back there. <laughs> um, awesome. And then last one, favorite Star Wars character. Oh, that's another. So I, you know, I, was, I, don't, I didn't, I'm a physicist, but I didn't watch much Star Wars. But having recently watched it with my little children, uh, I think the cutest one is R2-D2. I mean, so I guess that has to be my favorite. There you go. He's a star. He can do it all. Um, yeah. Well, great, Veneer. This has been fun. Um, hope to see you on the slopes one day or when we're out in L.A. when everything opens back up. Thank you very much for your time. All right. We'll Thank talk you. to you soon. Best of luck. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmalts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.